everyone, and welcome to the Holmes Politicast. I'll be your host today. Happy Cinco de Mayo to all of you who celebrate that, if you're listening today, I suppose. Otherwise, happy whatever day you're listening. Uh, it's rather cold for May. Oh my goodness, I woke up today and it was just freezing. Uh, this weather better heat up pretty soon or I'm going to... Well, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I guess I'll just suffer. But still, I hope it warms up. We have lots to talk about today. Last week, of course, um, President Biden gave his uh, address to the Joint Session of Congress. It wasn't technically a State of the Union. Um, I don't really see the difference, but uh, I guess there's a difference. I guess you can't give a State of the Union until you've been in office at least a year. So this was just an address to a joint session of Congress. We may talk about that more in depth um, in a bit. But um, here's a couple of more local stories that I wanted to talk about first. And then uh, Governor Whitmer announces a plan to tie the lifting of the coronavirus restrictions to Michigan's vaccination rate, setting four specific benchmarks that must be reached to return to normal. This is an article by David Eggert. Uh, So we know now that they're going, that we're slowly but surely going to be returning to normal here in Michigan. We're seeing the same trend happening in New York and in California. California, I suspect they're going to be reopened by summer or by the end of summer or something. I suspect that has more to do with Governor Newsom facing a recall election than it does uh, science, following the science, as they say. Um, New York, I don't know, New York City, I should say, is doing that and I don't know if Bill de Blasio is running for another term that could have something to do with that because they're having an election this fall, I believe, for New York mayor. I really don't know if he's thrown his hat in the ring. I know like Andrew Yang is running for mayor. There's a couple other people. But um, so that that might be the cynical reason why they're reopening New York. But um but Michigan, I, I don't know. I assume uh, it's just to follow the science or, you know, kind of thing. I mean, that's it, it's happening anyway, so you may as well get credit for it. Uh, Michigan also lifted the outdoor requirements under 100 and says that vaccinated teen athletes uh, can skip regular COVID-19 testing if unless they are showing symptoms. So these are according to the Associated Press, if you're interested in looking that up. Um, but uh, yeah, that is a good thing. Um, oh, a revised health order also allows for larger outdoor events like festivals. So hopefully, 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 This uh, whole thing will be behind us shortly. Speaking of Governor Whitmer, 
This is from Wood TV 8. In fact, I've had some problems with Wood TV 8 because of their uh, lack of oversight in their articles. But we're going to look anyway. Um, I'm going to go ahead and get into this anyway. Hopefully, I won't get tongue-tied by their sloppy reporting or sloppy journalism. But Governor Whitmer is among seven being awarded the Profile and Courage Award by the JFK Foundation. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer and six other people who risked their own health and safety to help and protect others during the coronavirus pandemic will receive the Profile and Courage Award next month, the John F. Kennedy Library Foundation announced Tuesday. The recipients, who also include a grocery store owner, a delivery driver, a nurse, and an activist, were selected from among thousands of nominations submitted by people around the country. Today's honorees put their own lives at risk to keep others safe. They inspire us all with their courage and give new meaning to President Kennedy's legacy of public service said Caroline Kennedy, the president's daughter and honorary president of the foundation. Uh, the award is named after Kennedy's 1957 Pulitzer Prize winning book, Profiles and Courage, about eight U.S. senators who risked their careers by taking principled stands for unpopular positions. The seven recipients of the COVID-19 Courage Award will be honored alongside or along with U.S. Senator Mitt Romney on May 26th. Um, Romney is being honored for being the only Republican to vote to convict former President Donald Trump during his first impeachment trial. Whitmer faced harsh backlash for her measures to control the coronavirus in her home state including armed protests at the state capitol and an alleged plot to kidnap and kill her. Thirteen people, who authorities say were motivated in part by resentment over pandemic restrictions, have been charged in connection to the plot. More on that in a minute. Uh, I'm interested in who these other recipients are. Here, here is a list. Dr. Amy Acton, former director of the Ohio Department of Health, whose partnership with Republican Governor Mike DeWine uh, won praise for the state's early and aggressive actions, including the first state to close schools. Burnell Colton, the owner of Burnell's Market in New Orleans, who allowed dozens of customers who lost their jobs at the outset of the pandemic to take groceries on credit, putting his own livelihood at risk. Fred Freeman of Hanover, Massachusetts, a fire captain and registered nurse who helped establish a program to help deliver COVID-19 testing and other critical health services um, to residents who could not leave their home. Antonio Green, an Amazon delivery driver in Charleston, South Carolina, who, while risking his health to, to make deliveries, noticed a sign on the door of a customer's home, which alerted visitors that he was undergoing chemotherapy and was immunocompromised, Green brought the man flowers and message of support. 
Lauren Leander, an Arizona ICU nurse who cares for COVID-19 patients, who stood with three colleagues in support of a stay-at-home order in front of hundreds of protesters, some of who intentionally coughed on her and her fellow nurses. And the last is Daryl Marks, an academic advisor in Arizona, who advocates for the rights of the Navajo and Hopi tribal communities at Flagstaff High School, who coordinated deliveries of food and supplies to Navajo and Hopi Indians, struggling during the pandemic to advocate for voting rights in the face of efforts to disenfranchise Native Americans. Um, so they're giving Whitmer the award, apparently, because they had a kidnap plot against her. And I guess I guess that's the reason she didn't resign. I mean, she wasn't harmed or anything, but I guess that's why they're giving it to her is because that's how she risked her life, I suppose. Well, I just think it's rather ridiculous. Some of these are, are good. You know, some of them are are good. but. And I mean, it's their own private organization. I mean, I guess they can give an award to whoever they want, but I just think it's rather odd that they're giving her an award where she didn't do anything above and beyond. Um, you know, some lunatics planning to kidnap her. That really doesn't make her anything special just because somebody wanted to do something horrible. But um, whatever, I suppose. Uh <laughs> My allergies are kicking in suddenly, so you may notice I keep taking a pause to sneeze or uh, my eyes are watering and are real scratchy. So um, you'll have to bear with me here. I, I don't normally have this problem, but of course it happens right when I start recording. So um, in North Carolina is advancing a bill banning abortions based on race or Down syndrome. This is according to The Hill. Um, a bill that would outlaw abortion on the basis of race or Down syndrome advanced in North Carolina on Tuesday, the Associated Press reported. North Carolina's House Health Committee approved the bill, which would find doctors who performed abortions despite knowing the motivation behind the procedure aligned with either of those two factors. The legislation is now being sent to the Judiciary Committee, where it's slated to be evaluated on Wednesday. Sponsors of the Republican-backed bill argue that selective abortions because of race or prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome are discriminatory eugenic abortion. This bill is not a sham, said Julie Scott Emmons, a representative from the conservative North Carolina Values Coalition. It actually places a hedge of protection around the entire class of human beings who should not have to pass a genetic test to earn the right to be born. Opponents of the legislative view. Oh, sorry, that's my fault. Opponents of the legislation view it as a, yet another barrier of abortion rights. I find this bill discriminatory, discriminatory against pregnant women, State Representative Verla Insko said. She added, I cannot imagine anything that is more threatening than to have someone take control of my body. I would much prefer that we push birth control. Wow. 
The legislation comes months after Democrats in North Carolina House introduced the Remove Barriers and Gain Access to Abortion Act. The bill would lift abortion restrictions that several lawmakers argue disproportionately affect black and low-income women. The Fayetteville Observer noted, the burdens placed on patients are political, paternalistic, and unacceptable, says Senator Natasha Marcus, a Democrat, a state Senate sponsor for the bill. Wow. I guess black lives matter, except in cases of abortion. And then, off to the races. Kill as many black babies as you can, as you want. Um... I don't see anything wrong with this bill. I mean, I, I, I do question how it'll be enforced, um, but that's a different issue. Um, but as far as the bill itself, I don't see any problem um, banning abortion based on race or Down syndrome. I mean, I, mean, I really... I mean, I could go further with it because I'm not in favor of abortion, but um, but I'm just saying in context of this bill itself, I don't see a problem with it saying that you can't have an, you know, that, that you shouldn't have an abortion based on, I don't like the color of the baby's skin, and so I want it aborted, or the baby's going to have Down syndrome, so I don't want to have it. Um, I don't see anything, I don't see anything wrong with that. That actually reminds me very much, or to do those things reminds me very much, as they as they implied here, of that whole eugenics project that the, the Nazis tried to commit in Germany, where you only want pure, white, um, healthy babies because you want to make the race stronger. Uh, that that sounds like what they're talking about. We only want to have white, pure, healthy babies. Because that's what we want in this nation. We want less of those little brown and black kids or, or any kids who have mental or physical disabilities um, so we can, we can secure the white race in this nation. That's what it sounds like. That, that is what I'm hearing immediately from the people who oppose this bill is that they want a nice, healthy, strong white race. And they don't want... Um, People who are inferior genetically, which would be black or, or, or Down syndrome. That's what it sounds like. It sounds to me like something that the media would claim that far right wing white nationalists would want is to abort the black kids and, the, and you know, and keep them only white. Um, so, you know, but in this case, it's actually the Republicans standing up to that kind of racism and white supremacy. So I, I don't have a problem with it. I don't understand with the bill itself. Now, like I said, there might be some questions about how you're going to be able to prove that a doctor would know that the baby is being aborted on by race or, or genetic, uh, you know, mutations or, or, or deficiencies. There might be some argument there about, how enforceable it would be, but, or effective it would be, but, uh, the bill itself though, I don't have a problem with it. And I just don't understand that woman who says she'd rather push birth control than this. 
again, well, I mean, how I don't understand. We're talking about something that happens after she's pregnant and she realizes that the baby is going to be dark skinned or mentally or, or somehow um, handicapped uh, mentally or, or physically. How is she saying that every woman should have birth control so that they don't have to make that choice so they don't get pregnant to begin with? I'm not sure what she's arguing when she says that she would rather us just focus on birth control than aborting than than stopping abortion of black babies. And, um, you know, so I, I really don't understand what that woman was was saying, but um, I in total disagreement with her. It's just, uh, just a really weird thing that uh, she's pushing there. Very odd, very, very strange. Um, yeah. Um, let's see. Oh, oh, in Alabama, this is interesting. The Alabama Public Health uh, Commission I guess trying to reach the millennials or young people, I guess, um, uh, put out uh, a meme with Darth Vader. And it says, with the thing is, Darth Vader wears a mask to help himself. Thank you for continuing to wear a mask to help those around you. May the fourth be with you. Um, and I, Michael Knowles, uh, response like be like Darth Vader that's the public health officials message to young people I mean it's such a dumb thing I mean to use Darth Vader as an example of someone who wears a mask and trying to manipulate uh, these Star Wars fans and these young people into wearing a mask because Darth Vader does I mean number one that's like an argument that you make with a child like, I remember that was the kind of thing that my family did. It's other families would do, you know, that, uh, you know, you'd see a character, you talk to your, like, four, four-year-old, and they'd see a character on TV, and you would tell them, like, well, Papa eats his spinach, so you should eat your spinach, too. I remember we did that in my family for my little sister, because my little sister loved Garfield, the TV show, the cartoon. She loved that. And I remember that one time my mom made lasagna. It was the first time she'd ever made lasagna. And my sister wouldn't eat it because she said it looked gross. And I remember my mom using that psychology. And my sister was maybe three or four. I can't remember maybe five at the oldest. I really can't remember how old she was, but I remember my mom making the argument that Garfield loves lasagna. So you should try it. You know, if Garfield likes it, then you will too. And my sister tried it and she really liked it. But my point is that was the argument we made for like a five-year-old was Garfield likes it. Go ahead. You know, and I remember that with uh, Popeye. I remember that was one of the big reasons why, um, I've read about this years ago that one of the reasons why they put had Popeye eating spinach and getting his muscles is to help promote 
eating vegetables and spinach to young kids. If they saw a Popeye eating it, then they would be more likely to eat it, to eat spinach, than if uh, than just hearing, well, you should eat your spinach, it'll make you strong when you get older. Uh, so the Alabama Public Health Service putting out and saying, Darth Vader wears a mask. You guys should wear a mask, too. I mean, who are they marketing that to? Little kids? I mean, or are they marketing it to, to teens and 20-year-olds who like Star Wars? I, I just don't. I don't think the teens and 20-year-olds are going to be moved by Darth Vader wearing a mask, so be like Darth Vader. In fact, they may just take that the wrong way and be like Darth Vader in every way that we don't want them to. Um, okay, here is the thing. The Hill actually did an article that I don't like, and I'm not going to read it, but I'll explain to you what I don't like about it, or, uh, uh, okay, let me just explain. Um, uh, the headline reads, a Tennessee lawmaker applauded after praising the three-fifths compromise on the state house floor. Now, the Hill is making the argument that this is a white uh, supremacist who supports the three-fifths compromise, um, which was, if, if you remember your history, well, actually, I don't remember history because it's actually taught wrong in the history books. So I'll correct you on this. But according to history books, the Three-Fifths Compromise was an effort to, to minimize black people in this country by only counting them as three-fifths of a person on the census. And so this Republican lawmaker... Uh, was being critical of that, ironically titled, critical race theory. And he was arguing that that is not true. And he was applauded for saying that the three-fifths compromise wasn't a bad thing. Now, that may set some alarm bells off with some of you who say, how can counting black people as three-fifths of person not be a bad thing. Well, we don't do that today because I'm not saying it was a good thing, but it was a necessary thing at that time. Let me explain. Okay, here, here's what happened. And as we talked last week about the census and, and how it affects uh, the House of Representatives, and how many and how many uh, representatives you get because it's based on num a number of people. So the more people in an area, the more um, representatives you get in Congress or in the House of Representatives. In the Senate, you only get two, regardless of how big your state is or how small or how populous your state is or how least populous or how pop, uh, pop how, however least many people people you have in there. The House of Representatives is determined by the number of people in that district. So what happened was that pre-Civil War, the South were counting, wanted their slaves counted as people. So they would have more representation in the Congress and therefore more power. What the North and the abolitionists argued was that you can't have it both ways. You can't claim 
that when it comes to human rights, slaves are not people. They are just property that you have when it comes to human rights issues. But then claim when it comes to the census, oh, those are people. So you have to count slaves, our slaves, as part of the population. So, you know, the North was saying, well, that's ridiculous because if you're going to claim what you call your property as being people that need to have representation in Congress, then we should be allowed to claim all of our property, our animals and everything else as people to, um, so we can have more representation as well. You either have to acknowledge their people and free them, or you can't count them as people on, in a census. So a big debate arose, and the way they solved that was that they said the North said, okay, let's compromise. We believe that they are people, but you say they're property. So what but you're not acknowledging those people, but kind of, you know. So they said, what we're going to do is we will count your black slaves as three-fifths of a person. So they will still be counted, but they will not be counted as full people because you do not recognize them as full people. So they will be only recognized as three-fifths of a person. So for every three slaves you own, you will only get one or not three slaves, but um, but you will only get one representation. Um, so that was the compromise. It wasn't an attempt to dehumanize black people. It was an attempt to keep the South from, or the slave owners, I should say, because not everybody in the South owns slaves. But it was an attempt to keep the slave owners from wielding enormous power in the Senate or in the House and therefore being able to pass laws that would protect slavery in the South. It was a compromise that the North wasn't happy to make because they really would prefer the slaves to have been freed. But if you're going to count them because they were people and the census does say and the Constitution does say that every person has to be counted. So that was the compromise. You refuse to accept them as people, but the Constitution says that they are people. We will accept them, but only as three-fifths of a person. Until you free your slaves, we will not count them as, as full people, therefore denying you that representation. It, I'm not saying it was a good thing because the best thing would have been to abolish slavery. And it, and it still stank that they were acknowledging black people as only three-fifths of a person. But it was a good thing at the time because it was an effort to keep the South, the plantation owners, from running roughshod over, over uh, the North and being able to put in archaic, draconian slave policies. You know, you know, fugitive slave acts and, and, and all kinds of horrible policies that they could have put through if they controlled the House of Representatives. So this guy is saying, I want that reflected in history books. 
instead of just this archaic thing saying that at that time, racist white people only wanted black people listed as three-fifths of a person because we didn't want to acknowledge them as a full person. That is not true. It wasn't racists who were doing that. The racists wanted them actually to be full people so they could have more representation. It was the abolitionists who said, let's make them three-fifths of a person because it wouldn't be fair to both claim them slaves and property and as full people. You can't have it both ways. So we'll only count them three-fifths of a person unless you free your slaves. You free them and we'll count them as a full person and you'll get full representation. But until then, they'll only be three-fifths of a person. So it's just a really interesting uh, – it's something that they really don't teach in history, the full reason why we had the three-fifths compromise. It was not an attempt from white people – to downplay black people and keep them from being able to have representation. It was protecting uh, slavery, actually, or protecting, uh, um, it was protecting black people, actually, by putting more pressure on slave owners to release their slaves. You will not have full representation until you free those slaves. So um, it was a good thing at the time. Today, I mean, certainly we would never want to go back to having black people counted as three-fifths of a person. So today it would not be a good policy. But at the time, yes, that was a very good policy and it was effective. It was effective. I mean, it didn't end slavery, but it, it put a, a, a chink in the armor. You know, it, it, it started to weaken the position of the Southerners in the, in the Congress. And, uh, one of the reasons why we eventually went to civil war is because the Southerners were very upset about this and were very tired of the Northerners and the abolitionists constantly thwarting their schemes to enslave people and keep them enslaved. The North was constantly pushing through these compromises. They were little things, but they were just little things that nagged at the South. Just one more little piece of Northern aggression trying to tell us how we can you know, handle our, our property, you know, um, and, you know, it was just one little thing after another, which eventually led them to break away. So, um, it was a good thing at the time, not a good thing for 2021, but it was a good thing for, you know, 1840. It was a good thing for them. So, but it's taught as if this was a, a shameful moment in our history, instead of that, this was a good moment that really um, started to, you know, to really place emphasis on human life and, and, and the idea that all men are created equal. It was, it was a push in that direction. So, um, all right, I guess I'll talk about a couple of other things. Uh, Facebook has upheld the ban on Donald Trump, at least for six months, uh, Facebook and Instagram. So we'll see in six months, this whole thing will be revisited again to see whether or not they're going to allow him back on there. But he's starting his own website, I guess. I don't really know the details about it, but I guess Trump is starting his own kind of, well, they keep viewing it as kind of a Twitter, but from my understanding, it's not really a Twitter 
where everybody's going to have, you know, it's not like a Twitter where everyone joins up and posts things. It's mostly going to be him posting, but I guess there's going to be comments. I, I, I really, I'm really not sure how that's going to work. You guys might know more by the time you hear this. More might be released, but um, and uh, Liz Cheney uh, is facing some uh, an ouster, not from Congress, but from the party uh, leadership, because she's been very outspoken and saying the party needs to move on from Donald Trump. Um, you know, we need to really go back to the basics of conservatism and and be more issue oriented instead of more Trump oriented, you know, like uh, being focused on an individual, we should be more focused on policies. If we want to win back the house in two years. Um, and I guess that hasn't sat well with a lot of, uh, a lot of Republicans who still believe that Trump is the future of the party. And so I think there's going to be a vote next week as to whether she will remain um, I, I really don't know what her position is, but they keep saying she's third in line of Republicans. So I'm not sure she's part of some leadership council, but I'm not, I'm not sure what her title is, but anyway, most, most people who follow politics believe that she's going to be ousted from that position. Uh, but there are already rumors in Washington that she is thinking about running for president in four years. So it probably won't be a big deal. In fact, she'll probably use it as a badge of honor if she runs to say that, you know, I'm a maverick. I'm taking on the Republican establishment. I'm, you know, um, you know, they've tried to boost, boot me out of, out of leadership and, you know, you know, she'll just use it as a badge of honor and I'm dangerous, you know, and I'm scaring the Republican establishment to support me, you know, like, I don't know. I don't particularly like Liz Cheney. Just, just uh, you know, to to be honest with you, I'm not a big fan of her. I don't like her a lot of her policies, but I'm just saying she. Uh, I'm just saying though that she is uh, could have a possibility of being a strong candidate um, in 2024. I personally won't be voting for her, but. Um, but this could help her a little bit. And um, on Biden's state of the, well, I keep wanting to say state of the union. I'll just cover this rather quickly because we only got, you know, five, six minutes left. I'll just say um, it was a very ambitious speech. Um, Biden does really well when he's talking very personal. Like he really can make it seem like He's talking right to you. He's very empathetic, very, um, you know, he looks like a kindly old grandpa type figure. I don't, I don't mean that to be derogatory, but he looks like the kind of grandpa that we all picture having, you know, who, um, you know, will sit down and tell you to you straight. But, um, you know, I, I thought it, it, especially in the middle, it was a little long. And I thought in the middle... He just got down to a laundry list, like I want to do this and this and this and this, and they got really slow. The pace went down tremendously. He's not as good just um, – of course, I don't know any politician who's really good at just reading lists, a laundry list. But um, like even 
Bill Clinton and 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 uh, Barack Obama, who both were considered very very good speakers, um, when they gave laundry lists, it was always kind of dull too. So, so I don't know if anybody's really good at just listing out things. But when he when he made it personal, he did pretty well. Um, but it was a very ambitious speech that I haven't seen since LBJ's Great Society speech back in 64, 65. I, I think it was 1965, actually. Uh, it was a lot of very... Um, I'm, I'm, what today we would consider more liberal policies. I mean, some of that stuff like infrastructure and jobs and and America buying and buy American are very conservative ideas. So I can't say it was all very liberal, but, um, you know, so, I mean, there were some things that he said that were very conservative. Uh, you know, um, in fact, some of the stuff like buy American were things that Donald Trump talked about bringing jobs back from overseas, getting rid of some of these lopsided trade deals, uh, you know, buy American products, ending the war in Afghanistan, these were all um, things that were talked about very prominently by President Trump. Uh, so it wasn't all liberal. I mean, I've heard that from some conservatives saying that it was just all, you know, this was just back to the old tax and spend liberals. And I mean, there was a lot of tax and spend, don't get me wrong, but it wasn't all a liberal wish list. There were things that conservatives could find um, common ground on. But there were some very liberal policies that he was talking about. I mean, you know, uh, I, I mean, I, I don't remember all of them offhand, but um, but the, the thing is, we're seeing we're going to see some real debate on this about the price. Like I told you last week, Joe Manchin is not, you know, he's very concerned about the price tag. He's concerned about the deficit. He's concerned about um, how much spending Biden is proposing on top of on top of this American jobs plan. He's got uh, the uh, the infrastructure plan and, uh, you know, these things. And they're all in the trillions of dollars. And I don't know. I mean, he said on there you could, but politicians say this a lot and it never seems to be true that this can all be paid for by taxing the rich in businesses. I don't know that that is true. Um, I've not seen any indication that that is true, but I don't say, I'm not saying it can't be true because I suppose if you tax the rich enough, you could pay for it. You know, if you, you know, if you gave them a 90% tax, you know, you, you could probably pay for a lot of these things. So I'm not saying it's untrue, but I don't think he's planning to tax the rich 90%. So I'm not sure what the numbers show, how much he's planning to tax them, how much revenue will that bring in, and how will that pay for trillions of dollars of new spending. It seems to me there have to be some cuts that you have to make. You have to make some cuts as well as raising taxes. If, if, I mean, I mean, it has to be some cuts anyway, regardless of whether you raise taxes or lower taxes, you have to have cuts to go along with it. Otherwise it doesn't accomplish anything. If you, if you lower taxes and, and don't cut spending, then you end up with a lot of the problems that we've had because Republicans cut spending or cut 
taxes a lot, but they don't always cut spending along with it. And so you end up with programs that suffer, you know, then what's the point of having the programs when we keep the programs in place, but then people are suffering. Like, you know, we have a program to help, you know, help buy lunches for, for poor kids at school. And then, but we can't, we can't fund it because you cut taxes. So instead of cutting spending and making sure that money is only going to the most important cases, all the kids suffer because you cut, you, you cut the taxes. So they don't have the money for it, but you didn't cut the spending. You're still budgeting, you know, $900 billion for kids free lunches. And, you know, but we're only bringing in $700 billion. Well, how are you going to pay 900 billion for the kids, the lunches and, and the whole government's only bringing in $700 billion. It's got to be split between all the different agencies. So, and you can't, you know, and, and just, if you just raise taxes and don't cut spending, then we end up with a much bloated government, which is what I'm afraid is going to happen here. That you're going to have, you know, like we had in the eighties where you're paying, you know, $700 for a hammer. And, you know, this is the government, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, stuff like that. Uh, you know, the, the, you'll be spending way too much money for things because you have so much money in your coffers that, you know, you're not looking for deals. You're, you're just like, Oh, the government, the government's buying it. Yeah. $700 for a hammer and the government buys it, you know, instead of going down, you know, to the local mom and pop hardware store and buying a hammer, you know, for five bucks, they're paying $700 for it. You know, and so because they have so much money, they don't have to look for deals. They don't look for bargains. Oh, yeah, we'll just, if we need more money, we'll just tax more. We'll never run out of revenue. So it seems to me that he needs to find some places to cut spending. And, you know, I could give them an entire list off the top of my head of areas where spending could be cut. Um, but uh, I'm not going to do that right now because then it'd be a laundry list and you guys would be bored. Um, but there are a number of, of areas where we can cut spending. You know, he should, he should do that. He should, he should meet the Republicans halfway and say, look, we're going to have to raise some taxes to pay for all of this stuff, this stuff, but it'll be worthwhile in the long run because we need infrastructure. We can't have our semi trucks and stuff driving over bridges that are going to collapse. We just saw in Mexico city, a bridge collapsed, um, killing a bunch of people because they didn't put money in their infrastructure. That's what he should say. Look, we don't want our commuters and uh, uh, business people who are trying to to do business um, having, you know, going on pothole roads, which are breaking, breaking items in the back. Uh, it's going to cost more in repairs and all these other things. We need to raise taxes a little bit to pay for these things, but we will make that money back in the lack of repairs and the amount of speed we can get products going. You know, we need to do our train system and our airports and all these things and our levees. So we don't have flooding when the hurricanes come and, you know, and our dams need to be redone, you know, really, really sell it. But I'm each halfway, we're going to cut spending on education. We're going to cut spending on, you know, on this, we'll take away so much spending on whatever. I mean, you know, I'm just, I'm just throwing some names out there, but you know, but these are some areas we're going to cut a billion dollars from so that we can offset some of those costs. We don't have to make taxes as high. We'll use some of the savings from that spending 
toward these projects. That way we only have to raise taxes by one or two percent as opposed to by raising it 25 or 30 percent or whatever. You know, if you met them halfway and said, I'm going to cut some spending, but unfortunately we'll have to have some tax increases to pay for this. And what he should do is put a, uh, I think they call it a sunset limitation, meaning the taxation will ex will expire. Like we'll put, we'll we'll raise taxes by we'll say five percent for the next um, three years, and then after that, the tax will expire, and it won't be renewed. It can't be renewed. So it's on limited tax for a specific time. Plus, we'll be cutting spending. You know, and so it'll make the medicine go down a little bit easier. If they know it's only for a temporary time, they're going to raise the taxes and it's going to a specific thing. They're cutting spending as well. And then the tax will be revoked at that point after three years and it won't be renewed. You know, or whatever the amount of time is. I mean, it might be more than three years, but but if they put a sunset on it and saying that this is not a permanent tax, we're not permanently going to tax people now at a 25% rate or whatever his numbers are. It's only a limited time, a small amount, and then we'll move on. And speaking of moving on, I'm going to have to go because I'm running over now. So anyway, I hope everyone has a great week, and we'll see you here next time on the Holmes Politicast. Bye, y'all.